Good morning, Watermark. How are we doing? It is awesome to be together and back with all of our friends in Frisco and Plano, Fort Worth, right here in Dallas. And all of you that are online today, we are thrilled to be together. It's been an amazing summer as we have been studying the Sermon on the Mount. I, I think Dallas knows this. I know Frisco, Fort Worth, and Plano knows this. We have been intentionally um, working our way through this series individually on campuses. I've been meeting with the guys that have been teaching all summer on Mondays for hours as we study the text together and make sure we all agree what it's saying and what God has um, for us there and that we would teach it in similar ways. Uh, but we've had over 15 different men uh, teach this summer, uh, 15 different folks that have taught our campuses. And in uh, Fort Worth, I mean, Tyler did the yeoman's work and, and uh, Josh Timms and Drew Zeiler jumped in up in uh, uh, Frisco, Connor, just carried pretty much all 13 weeks by himself up there. And um, in Plano, we had a number of men. On Dallas, we had six different guys that, that taught. So about 15 different people have been teaching the Word. There's a reason for that. I've jumped in um, three or four times to teach. But I've been here with you learning all summer. I've been sitting right there. Watermark is not Todd's church. People sometimes say to me, man, Todd, I love your church. I go, well, first of all, it's not mine. I didn't die for the sins of the people at Watermark. This is Jesus' church. And part of what Jesus would have us do is, as um, leaders in his church is to raise up future generation of leaders. And so that's why we've been very intentional this summer in doing this. It's why, um, and, and by the way, I mean, you know, we know that a lot of guys we're not raising up. They're just gifted and serve in all kinds of different ways, but we use them in different ways than they primarily do because we want you to know that this church is not built on a personality. It's built on a person. His name is Jesus. And we love him and we serve him, and we exalt him, and we're so grateful to get to use their gifts. I am a member of this body. I am a part of the flock. I am grateful for the way that you shepherd me and love me and help me, and I am humbled that you all give me the privilege also of, of serving as a pastor, leader, elder, and that my gifts that the Spirit of God has given me can be helpful to you in some way. But that's what we've been doing this summer as we've spent time in Matthew 5 through 7, the most Famous message it's ever been giving. And we are going to dismount today. We're going to finish the Sermon on the Mount. And what I want to let you know is that this message, this, this introduction of God to his kingdom work and what will allow you to be a kingdom person as you live with a kingdom ethic and a kingdom mindset is absolutely essential to your peace. Now I'm gonna tell you what we do when we teach here. Whoever teaches here, we don't try and equip the saints in the sense that we believe that this is going to be a healthy and complete part of your diet. You will not be a mature believer in Christ if you just come to Watermark and expect what you hear on Sunday morning uh, to be enough of the equipping that you would be adequate and equipped for every good work as it says. What we try and do and what we will do at this pastor's conference, that's what I think about when we come in here. We welcome our non-believing friends. We're so glad so many of you guys are here, non-members. But you need to know we are in here as God's people and we remind ourselves of the greatness of our God, all that he's done for us, his love for us, the rescue mission that, that God himself undertook in the person of his son, the visible image of the invisible God, Jesus, to come and rescue us. And we seek to remember how we should respond to that so that we can live worshipfully throughout the week. This is the pastor's conference. We're a kingdom of priests. We are sheep and we are shepherds of one another. And we're growing 
the pastoral leadership of this body that is here. But as we already said this morning, and as you look in the Watermark News, there is all kinds of other equipping opportunities you must avail yourself to. The greatest of which is life together as you devote yourself daily to the word of God and then pursue each other relationally, live authentically, admonish each other faithfully, and you speak forth the word of God, counseling each other biblically, we can engage together on a mission. But when you teach up here, the leadership of this church is very clear with guys that come up here. We're not looking to have some professorial moment where we're breaking down a text in a way that just transfers information. The purpose of teaching is not just informational, it's transformational. And so we are preaching. Now let me explain what I meant and I'm gonna show you how we're just following the example of our Lord God when he came in the person of Jesus and he gave a sermon, not a lecture. These are the words of a man who lived about 100 years ago and was a uh, teacher. Uh, his name's Martin Lloyd-Jones, if that means anything to you. And, and I read this about two months ago, and I go, that's what I've been talking about. When I talk to guys about how you communicate on Sunday, this is what I mean. So I'm gonna read it to you, so you can at least know what I'm intending to do and decide if I fail. But he says this, I assert that preaching a sermon is not to be confused with a lecture. This again is something quite different, meaning a lecture. And these are the reasons. A lecture always starts with a subject, and what is what it's concerned to do is to give knowledge and information concerning a particular subject. Its appeal is primarily and almost exclusively to the mind. Its object is to give instruction and state facts. Y'all been to lectures? Yeah, most of your life. That is its primary purpose and function. So a lecture, again, lacks and should lack the element of attack. The concern for the listener to do something, which is a vital element when you preach. The big difference, I would say, between a lecture and a sermon is that a sermon does not start with a subject. A sermon, sermon should always be expository, to posit, to think, X, from, to take your thinking from the text and to draw it out. In a sermon, the theme or the doctrine is something that arises out of the text and its context, and it is something which is illustrated by that text and context. I mean to attack you. I want something to come out of this that is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, that is able to divide between soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and I want it to, to put the seed of the word of God in you. And when it is in you, if your heart, by the grace of God, is malleable to truth, it will produce fruit. Now, that is exactly what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount. We spent nigh 12 weeks with Jesus preaching about righteousness and holiness and true humility before God. And we got last week to the application section where he kind of just said, all right, people, this is what you do with this. I wanna reread it to you. I'm gonna read what we talked about last week, make a couple of quick comments, because it all ties in with where we are. This is all the application section. Are you ready? Matthew chapter seven. I'm gonna pick it up right here in verse 13, and you're gonna find out that Jesus wants to do two things the rest of the message. He wants you 
to know why he has come and what you should do with what he has told you. He wants you to enter. And he wants to warn you that there are gonna be some things that can keep you from entering. False teachers and false belief. So, may God give you a heart to listen. Because he has come that you might hear this. Let me go in the attack from the Sermon on the Mount. Enter, enter through the narrow gate, the gate that's wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. There are many who enter through that. But the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. What you're gonna find out is that the narrow gate, the narrow way is the firm foundation that he closes this message with. They're all one and the same. He is calling men to know the holiness of God and the only true and right response to it. And he says, beware, verse 15. Something's gonna take you on the broad way of destruction. I am convinced that there are as many lost people in churches percentage-wise, as there are who are not in churches this morning. There are a lot of people who have what I'm going to even call a demonic faith and not a dynamic faith. And today I'm going to help you know that you can have a true faith because Jesus wants you to enter. Look what it says in verse 15. Beware the false prophets. Here's the warning. There's going to be some folks that are going to... Um, Come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. The church is never in more danger than when false teachers tell the truth. There is nothing more dangerous to sheep than wolves in shepherd's clothing. They are ear ticklers. They are um, men who will not exposit, who will lecture you with tips and techniques and little blessings that will help you manage your way through life and feel just good enough about yourself that you feel like you're just good enough for God and you will never come to repentance. You will never have a broken and contrite heart. You will never see the glory of the cross. You will never see the wonder of the rescue mission that's been revealed in the context of history, and you will be damned. You will be in the broad way that leads to destruction, and it will not go well with you. It might go okay with you through life. You might generally make it and be a good, strong citizen, a solid church and tender, you might tithe, you might serve in children's ministry, you might sing songs when John says, if you're a believer, sing, and you will be lost if you don't listen to truth. Look what he says. You're gonna know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bare fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I'm gonna show you what the good fruit is. And you're going to know people, Jesus says, by their fruits. And he is trying to warn them. Let me just say something right here. You need to know that it's a fact that um, false prophets can say true things. That's part of what they do that makes them so effective. Uh, that's what con men do. Con men don't walk up and start lying to you right away. They will give you just a little bit enough of a product that you think this guy's trustworthy, this guy's acceptable. Um, false teachers sometimes will open God's word. Um, they will call themselves the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They will call themselves Jehovah's Witnesses. They will call themselves holy men. Because those are words that ought to make you, I want holy men. I want, I want people who witness for God. I want, I want saints today. And they are often... They will call themselves pastors. They will call themselves churches. And if they don't teach what Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, they are false teachers. I'm gonna show you the fruit. Now watch this. 
Because not only can false teachers say true things, I want to warn you of this, true believers can say false things. This is why, church, listen to me. We are one church, four campuses, thousands of locations. You are a kingdom of priests. You don't come to Watermark. You are Jesus's people if you know him. That means we are um, a spiritual household made up individually as members that are being built up into a glorious body for God. It means we are a kingdom of priests. All of us, every one of us should aspire to be faithful shepherds even while we maintain the humility of one who needs to be shepherded themselves. Every one of you. And so there are true believers in our church. I think true believers who at times in your community group will say things like this. Well, I think that, or I believe, or it seems to me, or if you're asking me what I think, and they're not counseling biblically when they do that. If you're in a community group with others and they just are pushing you towards their own sensibilities, if when they are talking to you about your marriage, your business, your giving, your living, if they don't go, let's look at what the word of God says and let's admonish each other in our unruliness. Let's encourage each other in our weakness. Let's help each other in our faintheartedness with great patience, but let's go to war against our flesh and let's not tell each other what we think. Let's not be true believers who are false teachers. Let's not encourage each other in a way that seems right to us in our just get along, good enough world. No, we are shepherds of God. We are, if we're true believers, servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And when we speak, we counsel biblically. In your community group, I don't wanna hear what your culture is largely saying is okay. Because if you are citizens of the kingdom, you will live on this earth as God's ambassadors and you will be aliens and strangers to the cultural flow of the world. False teachers are gonna say some true things. They are con men. They build confidence and they set you up and they plunder you. And too many times, true believers say false things. Now here's something even more amazing. Jesus just got through telling us that you're gonna know true believers by their fruit. And here's what's crazy. I'm about to read you some of the most difficult verses in all of scripture. I will tell you, these passages, the verses I'm about to read in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, I didn't really understand for decades after I trusted Christ. I was puzzled by them. I knew they were true. I just didn't know how to explain them. They bothered me. They created insecurity in me. Um, they were a matter of prayer, but I was a little bit confused. And when people would ask me, what's that mean? I would tell them as best I could, but I was largely hopeful I was not one of them even while I knew I wasn't, and I'll tell you why I knew I wasn't, but I remember when God said to me, hey Todd, you know that thing you've been wrestling with over here? This is the answer to it, and this is how you should teach it. And so I'm gonna teach you that today. And here's what you need to realize. We know good trees by their good fruit, but watch, false prophets and bad trees can do good things. They can even produce what you would call is the most impressive of all spiritual fruits. And they're going to hell. Matthew 7, 21 
through 23. Are you ready? Watch this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Wow. Is there anything more impressive than a guy who can speak prophetically? Is there anything more impressive than the word miracle? Is there anything more impressive than somebody who can cast out demons? I mean, is that not the work of God to supernaturally intervene into a world that is wrecked and needs hope and to bring hope to a, to a world that is destined to oppression by lies and deceit of the enemy and the father of lies and to rescue them. And he's going to say, there are some people that will speak forth the word of God that he will do, use to do miraculous things and that will even bring demon oppression out of individuals who don't know Jesus and are going to hell. Now that's not, so far I haven't said anything. I just repeated Matthew 7, 21 through 23. And if you're sitting out there, you might go, well, hey, Todd, how do I know that's not me? Well, here's how. I want you to know something. You can know that you're not a false teacher. 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 through 13. And this is the testimony that life is in the Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. These things I have written to you who believe in order that you might know that you have eternal life. When I, I, I do this thing called Real Truth Real Quick to help equip you and to encourage you. And when I go back at times with the guys who help me with that and they go, Todd, do you want to know what the most watched episodes of Real Truth Real Quick are? Um, without fail, almost always in the top five most watched Real Truth Real Quicks, and I've done like four or five related to the same topic, they all had to do with assurance of salvation. I think that's a good thing. I think it's good that people go, I want to know for sure that I'm saved. How can I know that for sure I'm saved? You can't know for sure you're saved if you prophesy, do miracles, or cast out demons. Does that freak you out? It shouldn't, because it's right there the very first time Jesus spoke. Now, the good news is, is that Jesus, in this section, he says this very clarifying thing, okay? So let me just read the words of Christ. He says, look, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but here's who will. Those who do the will of my Father. So what's the will of the Father? Well, isn't it to do miracles and prophesy and to cast out demons? No. Those are things that will be a derivative of, but primarily the will of the Father is this. There's a time, it's really interesting, Jesus was, was standing there talking and, and folks were perplexed at who he was because he was bold, man. He was not running for mayor. He was on the attack because he wanted people to respond. He loves folks and he wants them to enter. And so they go, hey, your mom and your brothers and your sisters are outside. He goes, who are my brother and my mothers and my sisters? And then it says, signaling to his disciples, he said, these are my brothers and my mother and my sister. Those, he says, in, um, it's in Matthew 12, I think verse 49, he says, those who do the will of my father. And I'm like, okay, well, that's awesome. How, how do we do the will of the Father? Well, here's the great news. There was a time when Jesus wasn't in the middle of a long sermon that he was talking and that some people interrupted him and asked him a question. 
What is the will of the Father? What must we do that we are doing the work of God? And so here's what's gonna happen. Um, in John chapter six, if you got a Bible, you can turn to John six. We're coming back to Matthew seven very quickly. But in John chapter six, there were a group of people that were following Jesus because he was, guess what, doing miracles. And he said, don't follow me because I'm doing miracles. You guys are here because I gave you physical bread. It was both satisfying to your flesh and amazing. It's like a Copperfield shell. How's the brother doing that? By the way, I'll tell you that there's lots of guys that are doing miracles today that aren't doing miracles, speaking prophetically today that aren't speaking prophetically. prophetically. They're just doing charlatan and magicians and parlor tricks. I'm just telling you, I know that for a fact. And what looks like miracles aren't miracles. What looks like prophetic words aren't always prophetic words. It's pathetic. And it's not a godly people who seek signs. Godly people seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And what you're gonna find out is the narrow gate has a very specifically defined righteousness. The narrow way is a very specifically defined righteousness. The firm foundation is a very specific righteous foundation. Now watch, John chapter six, Jesus said, hey, you come to me because you saw signs. Um, and, and, um, and, and the signs didn't point you like they should have to the fact that something supernatural is among you. You came really because you want more signs. You, you want loaves and you were filled. He says, don't work for the food that perishes, for things that are pleasing to you for a moment, but work for the food that endures, he says, to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father, it says, has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, what shall we do that we might do the works of God? And this is where you ought to lean in. Okay, I'm taking you to John chapter six. I read you verse 28 because I want you to know how you can know that you have eternal life. Here we go. Therefore, Jesus answered them and said, this is the work of God. This is the will of the Father. This is the work he wants you to do, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And you're like, okay, great, Todd. That's why I say, Lord, Lord. That's why I come here. I don't walk in here at 920, like most Watermark people, I come here at 8.50. And I sing songs for 20 minutes. I sing Lord, Lord, and I, when you say Lord, Lord, I say amen. I'm a Lord, Lord person. Well, he says, some of you are gonna say to me, Lord, Lord, and I'm gonna say, depart from me, I never knew you. It's not just that you believe that Jesus is Lord, it's that you believe him. Let me just take you uh, in my mind's eye to James, was it James chapter two? I think it's... Um, in the 20s somewhere, where he says, hey, um, you believe that God is one? You believe in the Shema? Uh, and uh, in James 2.19, you believe that the most holy statement about God in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 6, that there is, the Lord God is one. There is no other before him, and you should love him with all your heart, soul, and mind. He says, you believe that? Well, awesome. Even the demons believe that, and they tremble in their belief. Demons believe that something is true. Demons do not believe in Jesus. They don't believe. Um, they believe that he is the Holy One of God. I, I, I've done this before. This is the demonic faith that I was talking about. When, when you look at demons in scripture and you listen to the way that they interact with Jesus, they are the most theologically, Christological, um, theocidal, um, eschatological, harmatological, informed individuals in all of scripture. There is nobody that speaks as much truth to Jesus in scripture as demons. We know who you are, the Holy One of God. Have you come to judge us before our time? 
That's a good angiology, that's a good Christology, that's good eschatology, that's a good harmatology, that's a good um, theodicy, it's all of that stuff. Demons even tremble because they, they have a faith that sees, but they do not believe in Jesus. They do not believe ultimately that they need what Jesus had offered them, which is intimacy with them. They don't believe God is good, they don't believe his word is true, and they don't believe that judgment is that big a deal, although they had a good hunch that it was gonna be pretty bad and they didn't want it. There's a lot of people that believe that amazing grace is a sweet sound. There's a lot of people that believe out that God is great and they don't believe in Jesus the way you need to believe in. And they don't have the son. They have information about the son. They would say the things about the son are true. They wouldn't say that they're Muslim. They wouldn't say they're Buddhist. They wouldn't say they're Hindu. They wouldn't say they're atheist. They would say, I'm a Christian. I largely believe that. And it isn't what saves. In fact, let me just go a little further. Um, it is possible that God will use you to preach the word, that you can teach the Bible, that in teaching the Bible and you pray for others, um, that in effect, that, that God, probably despite, well, despite the fact that you have no relationship with him, will bring healing, um, that when you preach the word, that people will hear it and they will repent at the word that was taught even though you yourself haven't. And you're like, well, Todd, what, what are you driving at? I'm gonna show you very clearly here. Let me just show you how God ultimately opened my eyes to what was happening. Um, uh, one other thing I want to stick in right here, okay? Would you guys agree that miracles, prophecy, and demon casting is an amazing kind of resume? All right, let me just show you very quickly at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount in verse 28. It says, when Jesus, had finished, when Jesus had finished teaching, it says the crowds were amazed at his teaching. So, so I just want to give you a little application point here. You can be amazed at Jesus' word, like, bro, that guy can teach. He speaks with authority. And you can do amazing things by the power of his word, and you can still be accursed by him. Because a lot of people that were there that day had been doing amazing things, and were amazed at his words, and were on the broad way to destruction. Um, here's another little statement I would tell you, and this is going to help you, I think, a little bit. Um, you got to make sure that you are a doer of the word and not just somebody that the word of God is doing something through. You don't need, I, I've got a good friend who um, is a Jew. His mom and dad uh, were both Holocaust survivors. Uh, and this, this good friend of mine, his dad had already been lost. His mother loved, I mean, he loved his mother I'd never really seen a son love his mother this much. And I had been talking to my friend about Jesus uh, for years. And I was actually in Israel with him. And I knew as his mother, when I was with him, his mom was coming to the end of her days. And he still was hanging out with me, but they, he finally got a call saying, you've got to come again. He was on the phone constantly with his mom throughout our time, but ultimately his mom was dying and he was going to go see his mom. And I just sat with him and I said, brother, I said, listen, I need you to do something because you know I love you. You see, I know you love you. And you, I love your mom. I've been praying for you. I've been praying for your mom. You have to go. And you, I'm asking you as my friend, would you go share with your mom these words that are true? And I, I walked him through a, a gospel presentation. I gave him scripture. 
And I said, I want you to go and sit with your mom in her last days. I want you to tell her that Jesus is the Messiah. I want you to tell her that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. I want you to tell her that if she will just cry out to him and accept his provision for her, even though she was a wonderful mom, her brokenness and the fact that she doesn't meet the righteous standard of God, that God loves her and he has gone to the cross for her. And he called me that night about 1.30 in the morning. He said, Todd, I, I, I shared all of that with your mom. With, with my mom, you know? And she listened, and I know she heard you. Now, I don't know, I pray that maybe she responded and cried out to, to her Messiah and that Christ delivered her, but my friend, just because he said those things, he could have casted out the demon of, of the unholiness that resides in all men. Can I just say something's gonna freak you out a little bit? If you don't know Jesus and the Holy Spirit doesn't indwell you, you are demon-possessed. Right now, <laughs> okay? I mean, and, and, and by the way, the way to get a, a demon out of somebody is not to cast it out and tell it to leave, it's to bring truth in. You get rid of darkness, okay, not by yelling at it, by bringing light in. That's what you do, you bring forth light, and when you receive the light of Christ and he comes in, and you receive a right understanding of the holiness of God, it dries away the, um, the futility of the unrighteousness of men who have given themselves over to the belief that God isn't that holy, his word's not that much big of a deal, and judgment when you reject God is not, not that consequential. But you can be used by God if you'll just teach the word, and by the way, here's the context. What I do is I pull the truth out of scripture. You need to know when Jesus is teaching this, this scripture to people that are listening, there are people that were there that were listening that had not come to the place of believing in the Messiah and that even didn't even believe in, in the sacrificial systems that God had put in place as a means through which by faith they could be declared righteous. They thought they were righteous because of what they did and they didn't even believe in God's holiness and they were amazed at his teaching. They were doing amazing things. The Pharisees and spiritual leaders that we, we have such a, a poor view of in scripture had been casting out demons. We know that in Matthew 12 because Jesus says to them when they go, hey, we think you cast out demons by Beelzebub because you're a devil. He says, well, that's interesting. You cast out demons. Do you think you do it because, uh, um, you know, by the power of the devil? They didn't do it by the power of the devil. God used their teaching the Old Testament and they're talking about the true sacrificial system that there were some people that generally believed believed that they weren't righteous because of what they did, that God in his grace had for a time, as it says in the book of Romans, overlooked their transgressions until the full fulfillment of those sacrifices would come and the righteous lived by faith. But there was a whole group of people who didn't live by faith. They lived by their own false understanding that they were good enough and holy enough that they could look God in the eye and go, there's my resume. I taught scripture. Miracles happened when we prayed and even demons came out of people. That happened with Pharisees. And Pharisees were not saved. Watch, this is when it came crystal clear to me. Um, there was um, a disciple, and his name was Judas that Jesus describes Judas as um, a son of perdition from the beginning. In John chapter six, he says this in verse 70, did I not choose you the 12 and yet one of you is a devil? Okay, that's John six. He just told the 12 that he chose one of you is a devil. In John chapter 17, verse 12, 
um, when Jesus is in the, in, in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's praying, he's saying, Father, every single one that you gave me, um, I've guarded them and not one of them has perished except that the son of perdition, Judas. Jesus knew exactly who Judas was. He wasn't duped by his kiss. And can I tell you something about Judas? When Jesus gathered the disciples together in Luke chapter nine, it's also in Matthew, it's also in Mark, Jesus got the disciples together and um, this is what it says. In Luke 9, 1, it says, he called the 12 together and he gave them power and authority over all the demons to heal diseases. Now verse two does not say, except for Judas, because he was a son of perdition and a devil from the beginning. He gave Judas the authority to go out and to do things as he testified to who Jesus was that would make people go, who are you people? And they would say, we're nobody. We are just servants of Christ. He is the visible image of the invisible God. And he has given us the authority to reverse some of the effects of sin so you can see that he is the solution to your sin. I'll go a little further just to show you this. Um, in verse 10 of Luke 9, it says, when the apostles returned, they, and notice what it does say, they, except for Judas, because he was a devil from the beginning. They, including Judas, um, gave an account to him of all that they had done, talking with him. Then he said he withdrew with them and they went to Bethsaida. And it was while they were there, okay, that the John 6 passage I read a little bit earlier, that whole conversation goes down. Jesus is up on the mountain and all 12 of these guys are sitting there and they're talking about what God had done through them, including Judas. They were sent out in twos. The guy that was sent out with Judas didn't come back and go, hey, how come you gave me this lame dude? He can cast out a single demon. There wasn't a single miracle done by him and he didn't speak any of the things that you told us to speak. No, they all came back, including Judas, with miracles, prophecy, and demon casting. Watch this. They were so convinced that Judas was one of them that at the very end of Jesus' life, now we're in John 13, watch this, we're gonna read this together. Jesus is saying, listen, I'm gonna give you guys an example. I'm gonna be, even though I'm God, I'm gonna be a servant. I'm going to, I'm gonna humble myself and do whatever I need to do to bring cleansing to people. The ceremonial foot washing was just a picture, okay? And he's just saying, you guys are gonna have to humble yourself and the world's gonna hate you because it hates me, but I'm asking you to go to work for the glory of God and not be people that are all puffed up because you have been um, chosen by the Father to be the, the apostles that build the, the unstoppable force that will shatter the gates of hell. I'm asking that you would go and clothe yourself in humility and wash people's feet with the truth of the gospel and do what I have done. This is Jesus' message to them. And so then he goes on from there and he says in verse 19 of John 13, he says, from now on I'm telling you before it comes to pass, that this is what's gonna go down to me so that when it does occur, you may believe that I'm he. I'm not gonna be jumped, I'm not gonna be surprised. Truly I say to you, the one who receives me receives, um, the one I send receives me, and the one who receives me receives him who sent me. And so you're gonna go out into the world, some people are gonna receive you, and when they receive you, they're gonna receive me, and when they receive me, they're gonna receive the Father. Some people are gonna reject you just like they reject me, and when they reject me, they're gonna reject the Father. And I'm gonna say, depart from me, I never knew you. Now watch. When Jesus had said this, verse 21, he became troubled because now it was time to tell him what was gonna happen next. He'd already told him several times, but now he's gonna say one more time, look, here's the deal. I'm gonna remind you that the, the scribes, the Pharisees, they're gonna crucify me. I'm gonna be handed over to the Jews and the Romans, and one of you is gonna be the one who does it. One of you is gonna betray me. Now, when Peter heard this, Peter freaked out. And he's like, okay, so we know from John, chapter 13, verse 22 and 23, that John... 
uh, was laying on Jesus, kind of had his head in Jesus's chest. And Peter's like, hey, John, John, ask him which one. Which one? And so we have this. So John, verse 25, leaning back on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Who's the guy? And so Jesus says this, this is the one that's going to do it, the one I shall dip the morsel in the wine and give it to him. Now the next words are, so when he dipped the morsel in the wine and he gave it to Judas, and then he said to him, what you do, do quickly, which I got to tell you something. If you don't think that the church and the ongoing march of the gospel is a miracle, all you got to do is look at the idiots he started it with. <laughs> because he goes, hey, what's you going to betray me? Uh, the guy dipped this in and gave it to him. And then he dipped it in and he gave it to him. And then they all go, where did Judas just go? And what's he going to go do? Oh, is he going to go pay the waiter? Right? Is it time to pay the bill. What's next? And so here's my question for you, okay? It says, they were supposing that Judas in verse 29 had left. Oh, he must have need to get more things. We're running out of food. He's gonna order more food. Why were they so confused? Can I tell you why they were so confused? Because they, they, they knew Judas. I mean, I don't know who's gonna betray Jesus, but not Judas. Judas cast out demons. Judas had prophesied and Judas had done miracles. Y'all with me? What had Judas not done? Judas rejected the idea that Jesus must go to a cross. By the way, who else did? Peter. When, when Jesus said this, okay, when Jesus said, hey, uh, who do you guys say I am? Well, some say you're Elijah, some say you're John the Baptist, some, some would say one of the prophets. He goes, no, 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 who do you say that I am? Do you believe in the one the Father has sent? Peter finally goes, you're the son of God, you're the Messiah. You are the, you are the means to which the sacrificial system we rolled up and the infinite holiness of God will be perfectly satisfied so that what all the sacrificial system um, anticipated, that the blood of bulls and goats could never wipe away sin finally, you're the high priest who will come, you're the one who's gonna be the lamb of God, and you're the one who can redeem sinful humanity. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon. That wasn't revealed to you by man, but my God above. That's exactly right. And he said, now, I just wanna let you know that I am gonna be a sacrifice, and I am gonna go, and I'm gonna give my life, and I'm gonna be crucified. And what does Peter say at that moment? God, no, Lord, forbid it. Over my dead body will you die. And what's Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Don't you tell the Lord what he's gotta to do to make this thing work. And Peter humbled himself, ultimately repented. He didn't get it to the very end. He was prideful and trusted in his flesh. But Peter eventually believed in Jesus and believed that he was the Messiah. He was the Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. Judas refused to believe it. Judas was a zealot. We know that. Judas wanted Jesus to be the Messiah, but his Messiah was going to be one that would take on Rome and use all of his conjuring and magic abilities his, um, his sovereignty over nature and all of creation and bring Caesar to his knees and set Israel free. And Jesus said, your problem, Judas and Israel, is not Caesar, it is the reign of sin in your life. And Judas would never trust in the righteousness that required the glory of God to die on a cross for him. And he said, if that's the way it's gotta happen, I'm out. I'm going to be righteous enough because I love Israel. And he said, you aren't righteous because you love Israel. You're righteous because you love God. John chapter, I mean, Matthew chapter seven, verses 21 through 23 can best be explained by Judas. And here's a fact, folks. God is going to use you. And God is using men in pulpits all around the country today. 
God is going to use you whether you're a Judas or a John. It makes no difference to him, but it's gonna make an eternal difference to you. Okay, Todd, you got 10 minutes, man. I don't wanna be a Judas. Well, lucky for you, Jesus keeps preaching. Matthew 7. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who builds his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house and yet it did not fail for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act in them will be like a foolish man who built his house in the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and it was great. Oh, how great was its fall. What Jesus is just saying is mark my words, judgment's coming. Mark my words. The, 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 the storms will come, the winds will blow and, and, and the waters will rise. And if you do not have a firm foundation, you will not stand. Now listen, I gotta be honest, I think I've taught this text most of the time as what I would say is a sanctification text. That's a big word, what's that mean? It would be like, listen guys, it's not just enough to, to say you believe in Jesus, you've gotta continue in Christ, okay? And it's a fact, it's not the house of God unless the foundation is Christ and it's filled with Christ, that's the house of God. And it's true all throughout scriptures that you need to be doers of the word and not merely hearers that delude themselves, but let me just preach a sermon. In other words, let me exposit, let me teach you what's here. In this Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus has been doing is introducing to men what the Pharisees were not introducing to men. These men that God was using to, to bring salvation to some of Israel was not leading Israel into true righteousness. They believed, and the Pharisees taught, that if you did the things that Pharisees do, you would go to heaven. That the righteousness of the Pharisees and the righteousness of works-based Judaism was enough. And Jesus says... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, or for they shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. What's really interesting about that, I just want to show you this real quick. Watch. Back up here in this very first part of this message today, in Matthew 7, 21, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. He hasn't used that phrase, kingdom of heaven, since Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, who gets to go to the kingdom of heaven? Answer, those who do the will of the Father, he says. But he also says in Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, blessed are those who mourn, who are brokenhearted over their sin. Blessed are those that are gentle and say, no longer my will, but your will be done. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst after true righteousness, not the righteousness of the Pharisees, not the righteousness of American Christianity, I'm a churchgoer, I'm married to the wife of my youth, I give money, I'm not an adulterer, I'm not an alt-right idiot, I'm not a racist. And that's gonna be good enough, God, I sing hymns, psalms. And he's gonna say, no, no, man. The narrow way, the narrow gate, the firm foundation is repentance. It's saying, I am a sinner. I've got nothing to offer you. And apart from the coming of God to rescue me from the wages of my sin, I will never be able to stand before your righteousness. There is no resume that I can build. You must save me by grace through faith. And even the faith won't be of myself. It'll be a gift from God, not a result of my work so that no man should boast. And then when you understand that, you continue. The foundation is in Jesus, and then you build on Jesus. And you walk in the good works which he prepared for you beforehand. 
as evidence that you understand the grace that you have been given. We ought to be the most humble people on earth. We should not look at those who don't know what we know and believe what we believe and go, what's wrong with you? We should look at them and go, let me tell you the works that Christ has done for me. And let me just show you, as I've built on the foundation of understanding the goodness of God, as I've loved him and sought him and sought more of him, he has produced in me the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. I hope you see that in me. But it is Christ from beginning to end. I'm not better than you. Jesus is the one who saves. The foundation here, this is a justification passage. What Jesus is saying is enter. You want to know how you enter? You're holy as God is holy. We can't be holy. Perfect. Be poor in spirit, brokenhearted. Mourn over your sin. Cry out to God and he will save you. What must we do to be saved? Repent. Turn around from workspace righteousness and human understanding and listen. Let me read you just very quickly from Matthew chapter 21. This is the context of who Jesus is preaching to. Matthew 21, Jesus is going to tell a story. Stories are so helpful. I just want to say this to you real quick as I get ready to do this. Way back... In May of 2019, on the 26th day of that month, I got a text from my friend David Leventhal, one of the other leaders, elders, pastors of this church. And we had been studying the Sermon on the Mount together, and, um, and he wrote and sent this to me. He was just weeks away from beginning our series on this text. He wrote me, he said, the more I spend time, Todd, in the Sermon on the Mount, the more I'm amazed by the genius of how Jesus completely redefines all that the Jews knew to be true. By the simplicity of his sermon, by how unbelievably high the bar is for a disciple, and by the feeling that I'm applying to very, I am applying very little of his words. I am so thankful for the hindsight that the perspective of history gives me to see that as he shared these words, his death was soon coming for sinners like me. The Holy Spirit was soon coming to work in my broken flesh to produce a righteousness of God and that his church was coming to encourage and help me in my weakness as I war against sin. That's a man who knows the narrow way. That's a man whose foundation is Jesus. And he heard Jesus say, hey, you've heard it said you should not murder, but I say to you, if you hate somebody, you're a murderer. You've heard it said don't commit adultery, but I say to you, look at a woman with lust in your heart, you're an adulterer. What Jesus just kept doing is saying, you guys don't know what righteousness is. Quit coming to me with you're just good enough is good enough. There is no good enough. There is perfection. There is God and there are sinners. And you are going to the broad way that leads to hell if you don't repent and come to the narrow way, which is through me. You ought to weep. You ought to weep in your sin. This is exactly what repentance is. Repentance always begins with a knowledge of sin. It goes to work in your heart to produce a sorrow for your sin. It leads to a confession of sin before God. It shows itself before men through a breaking off of sin. And it ultimately produces a habit of deep hatred for sin. If those things are not true of you, it worries me when I see people say, it's just the way God made me. It worries me when I say, I know what Jesus says, but I'm not gonna go there. Man, that doesn't tell me that there's a Holy Spirit that has convicted you of your sin. And we're not just playing church here. Jesus is calling you to repent. 
not show up and sing Amazing Grace. Do you know the despair that marks you? See, the people that originally heard this message never really got it. So Jesus told them another story a little bit later. This is what it says. Listen to another parable. This is Matthew 21, 33 and following. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it, built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves, beat one, killed another, stoned a third. And he sent another group of slaves, larger than the first. They did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son saying, surely they'll respect my son. Okay, listen. If you're a first century Jew, you're a Pharisee, you know your Bible, you know that Isaiah 5, God calls Israel a vineyard. He calls the leaders of Israel keepers of the vineyard. And what he's saying is, hey, guys, the vineyard that I've given you is not producing fruit. It's not producing humility and repentance. I don't want you to tremble at my word. I want you to have a broken and contrite spirit. That's what I've yet to deny. I don't want you to have festivals and Passovers and feast of booths and tithing your mint and your cumin, and then you don't come to me acknowledging your desperation for my salvation. And you guys are teaching men. In fact, when people become converts, you Judaic system, okay, or your Pharisaical church based works righteousness, you make them twice the sons of hell that you are. You're not bringing forth fruit in the vineyard. Now, watch what he says I sent you prophets. That's the story here. And you killed that prophet, so I sent you more prophets. And you killed those prophets, so I sent you a bigger wave of prophets. And you kept killing all of them. And so then I'm going to send you the son. Surely, he said in the story, they'll listen to the son. Watch. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said, hey, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. It's about to happen. Just a few chapters. Jesus asked this question, therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? And they said, he'll bring those wretched wretches to a wretched end. And he'll rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. And Jesus said, do you read your Bible? Psalm 118, he quotes, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God is gonna be taken from you and it's gonna be given to the people who will produce the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it fails, it will shatter him like dust. What Jesus is saying is, I'm the foundation, I'm the cornerstone. If you build your righteousness and acceptance before God on anything other than my gospel, on anything other than the finished work of me on the cross, it is the broad way which leads to destruction. Let me ask you a question, church. Do you understand the depths of your sin? Quit playing with God. There is no righteousness apart from the one who has come to rescue you. And so sing your little songs, rip out all your how great thou art, but know how great he is and weep at your sin and rejoice at your salvation, and clothe yourself in humility, and speak the words of truth, so that when God uses that to bring people out of demonic possession, it's done out of a heart itself that is affected by the word of God, and not just a person who speaks the words of God. We ought to be the most humble people on earth. And it ought to show itself by people who say, I want to be gentle in spirit, Father, guide me. Not my will, but your will be done. Close with this. This is a picture of a, of a beach house. Beach houses are given names by their owners. One day, maybe I'll have one to name. 
The owners of this beach house, they call it the Sand Palace. How ironic, the Sand Palace. The Sand Palace is in Mexico Beach in Florida. Uh, Mexico Beach is right in the middle of like a, a 54 mile stretch from Tyndall Air Force Base all the way down to Apalachicola. And in October of 2018, Hurricane Michael came to that 54 mile swath of land. Uh, 155 mile per hour uh, cat five, cat four winds with an eight foot storm surge hit Mexico Beach and it wiped out everything in that 54 miles. Every structure at our Air Force Base, every building was structurally damaged on the Air Force Base. Apalachicola had massive damages. But right here, the Sand Palace stood. That's 150 yards from the Gulf of Mexico. Now the reason is, is because the Sand Palace had built on a firm foundation. It had gone deeper than any of the other houses. And it built on that firm foundation with other sound structural engineering practices. It cost him 20% more. It cost God, his son. But it stood the test of the storm. And judgment is coming to every household. Let me just show you something else that's pretty amazing. All right, this is an aerial view of the sand palace looking down. Now, if you look down at it, you'll see the, the thing on the upper part of it, it looks like another house. It's not, that's just a slab. But behind it, do you see another roof? Here's a side view of that, okay? You see what also survived behind the sand palace? Another home. Because it got in the way of one whose life was on a firm foundation and in a sense benefited from the preaching of that word and it was protected. Parents, we're gonna talk about what's gonna happen with our kids. Can I just tell you, parents, the number one indicator of whether kids become fully devoted followers of Christ or not in high school, it's when mom and dad are serious about their faith. I mean, serious. They're members of this church and they're devoted followers and they don't have just a said faith. They talk about Christ in their home. They repent of their sin. They pursue oneness. They talk about how Jesus is the source of their marriage. They share Christ with their neighbors. Their kids live missionally with them. They're not just loping along and just you know skimming the top off to give it to Jesus. They are devoted to him and the kids see that and that firm foundation often leads kids to go, I see my parents aren't just churchgoers. They are Christ builders. And I want my life to be built on that same firm foundation because it's leading to flourishing in this household. Now, I'll tell you another thing that's just really interesting. There was one other house that was built by the same engineering company that was destroyed. Do you know why it was destroyed? It was destroyed because a house that was next to it was picked up and thrown into it. And I thought to myself, I just got to teach that for a second. Here's the teaching. In this world, you will have trouble. I don't care how righteous you are. Sometimes sinners and idiots and cancer and drunk drivers are gonna wipe you out and it doesn't mean you're not on a firm foundation. Don't worry, Mexico Beach is not your home. But when the storms of this world come, you stand firm against them. Sometimes you're gonna get wiped out, but this isn't your home. And if you just faithfully live on the foundation of who I am, others behind you will be blessed. Let's go. Church, repent, quit playing games, quit sharing the gospel without knowing the gospel, quit praying for people to be healed without knowing what is the healing to your corrupt, 
wretched soul. It is Jesus and you and I need him. I have nothing to offer him. I will not offer him this message, my preaching, my devotion to my wife, my discipleship of my kids, or anything that I have done. When I stand before the Lord, I'm gonna say, there's a narrow way, Lord. I'm accepted because of Jesus. And because of Jesus, I built on that foundation, and I built by faith, and I lived with Christ, and I give all the glory to you. If that isn't you, you haven't been listening for 15 weeks. Father, I pray that we would be people that would repent and that the knowledge of sin would bring us to our knees and would create sorrow and confession and a thorough breaking off from it and that we would rejoice in the cross and the Holy Spirit and the church and that we would develop a deep hatred for sin and that we would have an abiding faith. We'd be your church. Oh, Lord, protect us from just being Lord, Lord. Gather together on Sunday and sing, people. Let us be worshipers. Let us give glory to Jesus from beginning to end. Let it bear fruit of love and joy and peace and transform marriages and confession and living authentically and admonishing and counseling biblically. But Lord, it's all about you. And we come to you and we say, you're the firm foundation. We're amazed that you love us. We're amazed that you use us. But this is your church. And we are your people. Lord, if there's somebody here who needs to know you, would they just come? Would they not leave? Would they be frozen by conviction that they've been playing games? And would you drive them to repentance? And would they bear fruit in keeping with it? In Jesus' name. Amen.